glasses off. Last time on The Spectator, we detailed Molly Zelko and the aftermath of her disappearance. We heard from Molly's niece and nephew who shared their childhood memories of their Aunt Molly and the Zelko family's reaction to her disappearance. She wasn't to us at that time, she wasn't some crusader at Spectator. She was our aunt. Mm-hmm. Just because. We also learned that though the FBI refused to officially enter the investigation, J. Edgar Hoover became personally interested in the case and demanded regular, detailed reports from Chicago special agent in charge, Richard Auerbach. It was clear Hoover thought there was something more to Molly's disappearance. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. The chances are your chances are In a way, the Molly Zelko case as we know it began almost 20 years after it happened, and there's a chance no one would be talking about it today at all had it not been for Lynn Lichtenauer. Lonnie Kane, who we spoke to previously, in a way credits you with bringing the Molly Zelko story. Well, he'd better. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to hear how it happened? I would love to hear how it happened. Um, After spending several years working in New York City after her time at both the Joliet Spectator and Joliet Herald News, Lynn moved back to the Joliet area to nearby New Lenox in the early 1970s. um, We moved into an apartment in New Lenox, and a fellow by the name of John Whiteside had graduated from Northern Illinois University, and... They, uh, he and Mary Jane rented the apartment across from us. So there was a, a, a walk that separated our patios, and inside our apartment doors were across from each other. And um, one day there's a knock on my door, and um, Mary Jane, who I didn't know the name at the time, came with her little girl, Shelly, and said, excuse me, does the wash machine downstairs take quarters? That was the start of a lifelong friendship. So Johnny was starting with the Joliet Herald News, and so we would just talk. We'd sit on the patio at night, might have a drink of wine or two, and and talk. Well, I told him the story of Molly Zelko and how she disappeared, and that she said that if anyone got a hold of her, she would kick off her shoes. So I'm telling Johnny this story, and Johnny, being such a curious person, wanting to know the rest of the story, that's how it started. Molly was the holy grail, uh, the ultimate quest for John Whiteside. When uh, he first uh, got his job at the Herald News, his only the only newspaper he ever really worked for right out of college, uh, he lived in New Lenox, and the Lynn Lichtenauer was his neighbor. And uh, she started feeding him these stories about Molly Zelko, and that's when uh, he first started getting fascinated with it. Of course, it was 1978 before we actually got around to it. So he, he, uh, he goes to the city editor at the time and says, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to do a Sunday feature. Uh, Sunday package on Molly Zelko. And he says, Every, I've talked to people and everybody's got a Molly story. So 
John uh, gets permission to do this little Sunday package. Well, he starts talking to people, and he, it doesn't take long for him to realize that this is more than a feature uh, and that's going to run in Sunday's paper. So he comes to my desk, and he did this all the time. We, we, did, we worked together on lots of series, um, but he comes to my desk and, and did the usual thing. He says, uh, you want to work with me on this Molly story? Let's go. And it was always like, let's go. And that's kind of like, it wasn't like, let's let's get together next week and talk about it. It was like, let's go. Stop what you're doing now and let's go. Uh, and I always went, which was a good thing, because um, he took me on adventures. It would seem that from Lynn and Lonnie's recollections of John, he was one of those rare individuals who was put on the earth for his chosen career. And the Molly Zelko case defined that career. Simply put, John Whiteside loved being a reporter. I worked uh, at the Herald News pretty much through the 70s. Uh, John never left. Um, he started out covering uh, area communities and county government, pretty much stuck with county government. But as he got into his career, he also did these packages, great packages, and then he started writing a column. Uh, and <laughs> John, was a, John was an editor's dream. Uh, he, when he started his column, he did it daily. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to do something like that, but, uh, you know, he, he drove himself to exhaustion doing that because not only did he do his column daily, he was doing other stuff. He was reporting. Um, at, at, he finally had to back off a little bit. Not easy for John to back off on anything. His work ethic was unbelievable. Um, but he felt like he should have a byline and something in the newspaper every day. Though similar in writing style and both consummate professional journalists, Kane and Whiteside were a classic odd couple when it came to researching their stories. Lonnie was traditional and methodical, while John was fascinated by the more non-traditional methods, what could best be described as human interest. When we started working on this series, we had, we had Molly's shoes, which is a story that we should get into. Um, these are shoes that the night she disappeared, she kicked off and were found by her apartment on Buell Avenue. Um, we had the shoes because uh, Sheriff Trisna at the time had kept them, thinking that there was something about these shoes that was magical. They were such a huge part of the story. He actually kept them in, the in a brown paper bag with the evidence tag on in his home because so much uh, of the material that the police had gathered in 57 disappeared. Um, and he just didn't want those shoes to ever disappear. And he said, he gave them to Whiteside and said, here, you take them. And we took them, we, we decided to take them to psychics, uh, which on the surface, uh, initial gut reaction might be, well, that's goofy. Why would you do that? And quite frankly, we did it for fun uh, because we thought it would be interesting. Uh, and we did. And uh, the whole psychic thing got really involved. Testing, 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 testing. Flora, testing, 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 testing. Um, very strong that the car was sitting near somewhere near the West Pines Hotel. And um, the degree in Sephiriel's book by the astrology that she went by, um, Saturn was in a four degrees in Taurus, which would mean she'd be buried in Earth on the Hori chart. This is actual audio from one of the psychic investigations from 1978, part of which were recorded outside of Molly's home. And that's John Whiteside himself testing out the tape. Though he insisted on utilizing them, certainly Whiteside realized the absurdity of these methods to obtain the actual facts of the case. However, in an era before internet and social media made a worldwide investigative reach possible, 
there was also undoubtedly a side of him who hoped they might provide some answers to the case's most pressing questions. This person reminded me of a Dorothy Kilgallen, ready for a lot of scoop, and you also, you know, you're ready to dive headlong into it. We did crazy things. We did seances, and we did uh, something called table tapping, where you're sitting around this card table and you're talking to a spirit that moves the table to answer yes or no. I mean, this is the crazy stuff. We were when you start dealing with st- psychics, you walk into this dark world. I mean, at the seance, the lady that was doing the seance, she begins it by saying, talking to these spirits that she wants to come uh, and speak to us, and she starts off by saying, "Come pleasing to the eye." And uh, Whiteside and I look at each other and say, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, well, pleasing to the eye, you know, good. Oh, So anyway, uh, and there were strange things that happened with, uh, you know, we were trying to tape record one of the seances and for some reason the tape uh, just stopped and started spilling out all over. And we took a picture of the lady that was running the seance and there was a strange fog across her face. I mean, weird stuff happens. And after a while, you get so wrapped up in this culture that the whole there's a paranoia, you know, add that, add the whole fear factor that we were getting from our sources to this psychic, uh, dark atmosphere that we had where they were saying, oh, you're being watched, you're being followed, you are in danger doing this story. I mean, it was weird. It was dark. But she could have been born late at night or early in the morning. This makes all the difference in the world at, for astrology. As the original source of the story, Lynn often tagged along with the two reporters on these paranormal adventures. Like Lonnie, she recalls being equal parts frightened and entertained. We, we had some funny times with the psychic, Evelyn Paglini, in a seance, and I thought, if I hear anything, I am out of here. And when we went out to Hamill Woods, you know, now we're going to go in the middle of the night in a car with Evelyn Paglini in the front seat, and I think Johnny and Lonnie, I forget who was driving, and I'm in the back seat, and I think, oh my God, what am I doing? But um, anyway, that, it was a funny evening when we get out of the car. I'm not getting out of the car. <laughs> Finally, you've got to get out of the car. So I got out of the car, and I won't leave the side of the car because it's pitch black, and Lonnie put his hand on my shoulder, oh my God, I thought I was going to die. And I was, and that he was going to die. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we had some, some times. While these experiences certainly made for colorful content for the newspaper series, they didn't reveal much about the case from what was already known. And even the unconventional John Whiteside grew skeptical of these methods before too long. Finally, and it was Whiteside who, uh, who said, uh, you know what? We need to get back to the story. We need to start focusing on what we know and talking to people that knew her and and, and leave the psychic stuff behind, Um, which we did. Uh, We left it behind, uh, although if you're talking about our story and our our chase for the Molly facts, the whole psychic thing is is kind of a hoot. Uh, And it led to uh, a significant find in our search for information on Molly. And when I say significant, um, we found uh, a woman who was in her early 20s, living on Stryker Avenue in Joliet. And the night 
that Molly disappeared. She told us she witnessed the burial of a woman in what was being constructed along Stryker Avenue at the time, which was a storm drainage ditch. What are they doing? They're burying it. What are they burying? Kane and Whiteside's 1978 Joliet Herald News feature produced an exhaustive amount of leads. In the course of hundreds of tips, the pair located a woman who claimed to witness the burial of Molly Zelko the night she disappeared. Twenty years after the fact, the woman's memories were understandably hazy. So after their initial interviews, in which Kane and Whiteside deemed her credible, they again revisited their dark world, as Lonnie termed it, of unorthodox means to obtain answers. We should warn you, some of the audio you're about to hear may be disturbing. And per Lonnie's wishes, we've redacted the identity of the witness. I'm going to record the date for the tape recorders as being Thursday, the 13th of July, 1978. And I'm speaking in the presence of Dolly and Lonnie Kane and John Whiteside. And this is Dr. Honeyo speaking. You continue to relax. What I'd like you to do at first is to use your imagination part. I'd like you to imagine you're sitting at a desk. And in front of you there's a calendar. It's one of those special day calendars. It just has the day and the date on it. And you see a date, July the 13th, 1978. See that? Okay, very good. All I want you to do in your imagination is to look or flip over a page. And underneath there you say, you see Wednesday the 12th of July, 1978. See that? Okay. And we flip over another page and it goes to the 11th of July. You got that? Very good. And the next page goes to the 10th, and then they get flipping by themselves, so it's the 9th, and the 8th, and the 7th, and the 6th, and the 5th, and the 4th. We interviewed her. Um, we put her under hypnosis twice um, to try and get more information, license plate numbers, stuff like that, uh, details. Um, and the person that uh, did the hypnosis for us uh, was uh, Dr. George Haniotis, who has passed, um, but it was in Joliet, and he had agreed to do this because he was also kind of fascinated by the case. And the woman, our witness, agreed to the hypnosis with the agreement that uh, Dr. Haniotis would also treat her for, uh, she had migraines and uh, uh, severe severe headaches and, and, and other issues, which I think she says goes back to 1957 and what she witnessed, um, and he agreed to do that. The, um, the hypnosis uh, provided a, a great uh, amount of detail as to what she saw that night. Um, and you have to kind of um, picture a small, frail woman in a huge leather reclining chair, leaning back, both arms on these large uh, leather 
leather arms in this chair as she recounts what um, happened. Talk right now for a little bit. Just relax. Things that you have to be aware of is the talk. She talks in the present tense. She was right there. Okay, it wasn't talking. I was there. I was doing that. She's talking in the present tense. That's a quality of being there. She may be in, a, in what we call a hypermnesia, which means she may remember, but if she remembers, she's talking about this in the past tense. So she's right there reliving this. She's talking about it in the present tense. What's the date? September. September what? Twenty-six. What's the year? Fifty-seven. How old are you? Twenty-seven. You're twenty-seven years old. Okay. Where are you right now? Yeah, what time is it? It's seven o'clock. Seven o'clock in the evening? Or yeah. the morning? Seven. Okay. And where is your kitchen? To the west side of my house. Okay, and what house? Okay. And is there a window there? Yeah. I see. What street do you live on? Stryker. Stryker? Okay. Now, at this point, what I'm going to do is have Mr. Whiteside and Mr. King begin to ask you some questions. Okay? Yeah. All right, fine. You can hear this on the tape that we made. She's sitting in this chair and she's starting to talk about this big black, she, she hears something outside her window. She peers out through the curtains. She thought maybe it was her husband coming home. She was, she was in a troubled marriage at the time and it was really late. It was a, around midnight later, a little later. And she thought, oh, maybe it's my husband coming home. She looks out and it's not, it's this big black car. And then I hear very slow. slow. I jumped out of bed and I look out my window. Oh my God! What's happening? I see a big black car, big black, and Queen goes. Alright, stop the picture. Stop that picture right there. Look at that car. And these four guys get out, and she she describes how they open the trunk and and there's takes out this body that's wrapped in a blanket or a rug or something like that, um, and they take it and they put it in the ditch, um, and there's this moment on uh, in, during it's on the tape and during the hypnosis where the a leg kind of flops out of the blanket, and you can in her and she says it's a body, it's a body. Okay, be quiet. What's happening? What are the names? Oh, it's a leg. Oh, my God. What is it? It's a bone. What are they doing? What are they doing? Oh, I get down. I'm they walked around to see how I was looking. He has an overcoat on. Describe him. What does he look like? He's short, chunky, dark complexion. He looks dark to me. It's dark. Okay. I can only see him by the light. Okay. And what's he the... appeared in my window. He saw me. I know he saw me. Queen, shut up. Shut up, Queen. 
the leg. I can see the leg. What are they doing right now? They're taking her out of the trunk. How do you know it's a her? I don't know it's a her. I just know it's a body. Okay. It's a her. I just know it's a her. How do you know? I don't know. I just know it's her. It's who? I don't know who. You just know it's a I her? I just know it's a woman. Okay. She had no shoes on. She could tell it was a woman. Um, and so she describes this in detail. And all, all the time that she's describing this, you know, picture this frail woman in his big leather chair, swallowed up by this leather chair, and her little arms are on these big leather, uh, her uh, leather arms. And, and she, as, as the tension builds and she gets closer and closer to the moment, you can hear her hands tapping. on the chair because she's nervous. By the time she's done, it's going like that. Just once in a while. What else did they say? I'm getting a headache. Okay. My head hurts. What time is it? It's 145. She's scared as hell. Are you going to call the police? No, 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 my head hurts. You're upset about that, huh? My head hurts. Okay. Just relax, relax. I'm going to count three, and that scene is going to be over. One, two, three. It's, it's uh, traumatic, it's dramatic, um, and it, it just you just felt like you were there. You've been carrying this for a long time, and it's been causing you some problems because you've been carrying it for a long time. And you just unloaded it. And because you've unloaded it, you're going to have a tremendous sense of relief. Now, that's something that's happened in the past, isn't it? Yes. Don't ever tell anybody. Please. Okay. It, it Don't belongs. ever tell. It belongs in the past, too, doesn't it? My head is hurting. All right. Your head will be fine in a few moments because it's going to be all over it. I'm going to count to three, and you're going to come forward. Stay in hypnosis. One, two, three. You'll be right here now in the present. Okay? Deeper down, relax. You're right in the present. So afterwards, we look at the uh, hypnotist, we look at uh, Dr. Haniotis, and we say, well, <laughs> it, it, is this believable? Uh, and he says, I'll tell you this, guys, 
<clears throat> when you're under hypnosis, number one, you can lie. Uh, but my professional opinion is that this woman on September 25th, 1957, went through, witnessed uh, something that scared the crap out of her, was traumatic and horrifying. That was his professional opinion. So, and when you listen to the tape, and I and John and I were there, we watched it. Um, if she was acting, she's a good actor, uh, an excellent actor. Uh, so, well, you know, we both walk away thinking this is really powerful stuff. Um, and as it turns out, her story, um, we kept her anonymous, and she has been anonymous to this day. Um, was our lead article. Uh, in the series that ran for two weeks. We kicked off by this woman describing what she saw that night. Um, and uh, the sad part of it is that we had we had this witness, we had her story. Um, we didn't have anybody in law enforcement come, come to us and say, uh, demand to know her name, uh, or push it to the point where maybe we should be digging and Stryker Avenue to see if there's something there. Um, that never happened, um, and to this day hasn't happened. While the hypnosis sessions are a tantalizing chapter in the story, Kane and Whiteside later learned they were not the only evidence that something suspicious had indeed happened on Stryker Avenue in the early hours of September 26, 1957. Uh, several years later, after the series, and John wrote, uh, John I revisited that series of articles a couple times over the years and did a series of articles, but he was also always writing columns around her anniversary. And, and every time he wrote a column, new information or new sources would come forward, uh, new theories. Uh, it always prompted reaction. Um, well, in 1986, John got a letter from a gentleman who had read his latest, uh, whatever he had written at that particular time. And this is a guy that we ended up interviewing and uh, he, he had also written uh, more letters down the road. But here's a guy who said he, he's been living with a, a story that he should have told us a long time ago, back in 78, and he didn't, even though his wife was yelling at him to do so. And finally, he decided to tell us because he thought it was, it was the sort of thing that before he passed on, he needed to tell. And the story that he told is that he worked on the construction crew that was putting in that storm sewer line. And it was his job to cover up the pipe he came back to do that the day after the night that Molly disappeared. The next morning, he came back to cover up that line, and it was done. It was already done. And he asked questions about it because he got paid for that sort of thing. And he was basically told, don't worry about it. Don't ask questions. And he knew exactly what that meant. Again, this, this was the atmosphere in Joliet at the time. He knew exactly what that meant. So he didn't. Although he said it's always bothered him. He's always suspected that it's very, very possible that it, Molly is under there. And he said that when he passes on, he'll find out. So he, so over time, he told us that story. Now, our witness said that the next day she had 
someone from that from the crew come and knock on her door and she said they would do that she would give them water but it was really weird because this this particular day the person that asked just said how'd you sleep last night uh, she was personally convinced that they knew she saw and she was terrified absolutely terrified and nothing happened in terms of you know threats or anything like that it was just this how did you sleep last night? And she said shortly after that, she had a gro an unpaid grocery bill at a local store that was paid for anonymously. That Christmas, she was on, for some reason, she was on this list that this organization helped needy families. But she said every Christmas she was on that list. Uh, her life got a little bit easier and better. Um, our witness also, as we continued to talk to her over time, told us up front, I haven't told you everything. I don't know if I will, because she was protecting someone else. We think it was somebody that actually worked for the construction company. Never got that person and never got all that information, other than the fact that she would give us a little bit more each time we talked that led us to believe that she knew more than she told us. She believed that Sheriff Trisna believed when we talked to him. Uh, a lot of our sources believe that uh, the people that took care of Molly, made her disappear, were mob-connected, and it was had all everything to do with the mob and her crusade against uh, gambling. In Joliet today, largely as a result of Kane and Whiteside's investigation, Stryker Avenue is synonymous with the mystery and is the front-runner of many theories as to Molly's ultimate whereabouts. The 1978 investigation ignited the community of Joliet, and inspired a newly invigorated era of sleuthing into Molly's disappearance. We learn that Dennis Henrietta, our resident private investigator who we've heard from throughout the series, was one of them. As a result of the Joliet Herald News landing on Dennis's kitchen table in 1978, another eyewitness who claimed to see Molly's burial on the night of her disappearance came forward. There was just one problem. It was miles away from Stryker Avenue. As we explore other theories on Molly's fate, we ask... Is it possible some of the most powerful forces in the nation aligned and conspired to make sure Molly was never found? Was her disappearance part of a deal that placed her at the center of a mutually assured destruction pact of the Mafia, Teamsters, and the United States presidency? In true form of the Molly Zelko mystery, it's actually not as crazy as it seems. That's next time on The Spectator. Is falling from my eyes, waiting for the setting sun. When a hard day's work is done, the Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Greg Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of the Joliet Public Library's digital media studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, and Dennis Henrietta. Special thanks to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library. And there's buried treasure hidden in the ground. Precious memories of a love that lived and died. You couldn't be the simple wife. Cause I'm walking behind
this plow. I keep turning over. 